What's up, guys? Welcome to the Strength Talking Shop podcast. We are presented by Optimum Nutrition Athletics. We all know that protein is the key to muscle recovery. Best-selling 100% whey protein provides 24 grams of protein that mix easily using just a glass and spoon. Gold standard 100% whey is made in their state-of-the-art facility. It's banned substance tested by Informed Choice through Optimum Nutrition Athletics program. You can get different items such as their Pro Gainer, which is our Mass Gainer, um, ready-to-eat snacks such as their Cake Bites, wafers, and almonds. And after dominating the sports and nutrition industry for over 30 years, newly created Optimum Nutrition Athletics brings that same trust and quality that knows how to put convenient options for protein in the hands of athletes who desire to get bigger, stronger, and better at their sports. Make sure you reach out to Dave Harvey of Optimum Nutrition Athletics in the show notes on how you can get that into your facility. The guest this week, it's a big one, guys. Um, somebody that I wish I would have had on here sooner, but we, we figured it out finally through you know my scheduling conflicts and everything. We've got a uh, We've got Coach Angelo Gingerelli, the strength and conditioning coach, adjunct professor at Seton Hall University, and he's the proud author of the Finish Strong Resistance Training for Endurance Athletes, which is available anywhere you can get it at, guys. Angelo, good morning. How are you? Thanks, man. Appreciate you having me. Big fan of the podcast. Excited to talk today. I'm excited to uh, to reach out to you and, and have you on the podcast Um not very often you get somebody that's written their own book here on the podcast. That is a huge accomplishment um, to be able to get something like that done. What was kind of the inspiration on writing that? It was, it was kind of like so much, I've been in the profession for a long time and it just hit me. I, I, I kind of grew up kind of like you powerlifting, Olympic weightlifting, super anaerobic side of things. Got a little bit older in my early thirties, started running marathons. I just kind of realized that our profession doesn't do a great job of training those cross-country kids, those marathoning adults, those triathlete adults. And I just wanted to be one of the people to try to bridge the two worlds and put them together. Because I do feel like I'm a decent marathoner. I'm not world-class or anything. Mm-hmm. But I've been able to do it into my 40s, consistently get faster, really not been injured, luckily enough. I think a big part of my success in the endurance world is that strength base I had from all those years of, of lifting as a power lifter and a little bit and strength and conditioning coach. And I just think what I saw happening in the world was kids get pigeonholed super early as you're a runner, you're a basketball player, you're a baseball player, whatever it is. They put all their age in that basket and don't develop outside of that at all. Right. Yeah. And you look at adult endurance athletes, they're really the victims of that a lot because they're able to run all these miles, swim all these yards, bike all these hundreds of miles, but their bodies break down eventually. Right. And my idea was I've been successful by combining the two a little bit. I wanted to be one of the people to, to get that information out there. And luckily Bloomsbury publishing saw the vision, uh, allowed me to work with my colleague, Dr. RJ Borgers, another endurance athlete that we used to re- run together, train together. He was teaching classes. I was in the weight room and we just kind of had a conversation back in 2018, how more people would do better in the endurance world if they incorporated some kind of resistance training. And then we kind of pitched it and got the book out there. And now, you know, it, it's a, been a four-year process because of COVID kept pushing the publishing date back. Right. But uh, it's been a great process, man. It's been really cool. And uh, you know, I got a lot of people to thank. A lot of Australian Disney podcasts have me on as guests, which I super appreciate. But the idea behind the book was just there's a value in, in running and endurance stuff. There's a value in lifting weights and putting some weight on the bar. And they're probably not as far apart as we think they are as far as being in two completely different worlds. You could probably benefit from doing both. When doing the research of your book and everything like that, were there any like misconceptions that you found as far as like, oh, you can't do this amount of running and then then do this amount of lifting and stuff like that? You know what the the funny thing is, man, research wise, that doesn't exist. There's (laughs) no research done on that. 
But on the anecdotal side of people that think you can only do one or the other, that is rampant in both worlds, right? Right. I'm friends with powerlifters that will not do any cardio activity ever, right? And I'm friends with marathoners and triathletes that are terrified of a lat pull-down machine, right? And it re- sounds funny, but it's true. And in reality, the people – and I understand from a, from a powerlifting standpoint, you probably don't need to run a ton of miles, right? But as far as overall health, doing some kind of cardio is probably good for you. We all agree on that. Yeah. And then on the endurance side of things, the idea of like, okay, yeah, if you put on too much muscle mass, you're not going to be as fast. That's probably true. But unless you have incredible Hulk level genetics or you're going to take steroids, most men and women, and by most, I mean 98 plus percent of us are not going to get super jacked going to the gym a couple times a week. Agreed? Agreed. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. The thing about it is um, every elite or casual powerlifter guy I've talked to, I always ask them the one question. I say, what's one thing you wish you would have done differently throughout your career, right? They always say more cardiovascular training. If it, uh, there's proofs in the pudding, if you get more cardiovascular in shape, you're going to be able to last longer. I take an appointment my last powerlifting meet. The meet started at 930. We were handing medals up by 1230. Guys and gals were gassing out before deadlifts. I was getting stronger as the meet was going on because I put miles on my elliptical and weighted vest walks, and I worked on my cardiovascular health. Right there should just show you it. If there is some benefit here too, as well, um, it's crazy. Yeah, the other thing I always say too is like you're a power lifter, you're a marathon runner, you're a triathlete, you're an Olympic lifter. You're also a human being, right? And to yeah. some extent, you know, bench press. I have a friend, one of my best friends in the world, named Mike Kapinski. Bench press 600 pounds a couple of years right before the pandemic. He set the world record at 181. And the crazy thing about that is there was a point when we met when I was actually way stronger than him. And then that ended right away, right? <laughs> but, um, but and here, I always joke around with him. I'm like, it's great you can bench press 600 pounds. But if you die of a heart attack when you're 50, it's not going to matter a whole lot. You know what right. I mean? So it's some element of you got to train yourself as a human being and think about long-term health and long-term vitality more than just what's happening in front of you. And I understand for young athletes that listen to this, that's always easier said than done, right? But I think in, as I've gotten older, I've realized that in my job in college athletics is – Ever the coaches and the players are always thinking about like right now, what's our, we have a series this weekend. We have a game this weekend. We have a conference championship at the end of the month. And I think to some extent being the older state in the room, you got to be like, okay, there's a biggest championship at the end of March, but you're going to be alive. Hopefully 70 more years after you compete in that. How do we get you set up for those next you know decades? You're going to be alive. Hopefully playing with your kids, playing with your grandkids, staying physically active. The joke I always make with college kids is I hate to say this, but we will, I'll meet, you know, graduation will come. Kids will come in the weight room, say goodbye, say thank you, which I love. And they are specimens. They are ripped abs, V taper. They look like they belong in Under Armour commercial, right? Yeah. I see them at an alumni event 12 months later. So the next basketball season, these kids look like they ate the mushroom on Super Mario Brothers. They gained so much weight <laughs> in one year. And I was like, all right, listen, you had to do 20 hours of physical activity as a student athlete, right? Yes. If you keep eating, drinking and living like that and remove all of the physical activity, there is no other scenario than morbid obesity, right? So my job is we have to train for what we're doing, get you big, strong, fast for the time you're playing sports for us at Seattle University. But as I've gotten older, I've kind of kind of developed more of an interest in how do you help people be healthy over the long-term span of their life, right? And one thing I kind of came up with was 
for me anyway, I got involved in running marathons in my 30s and was able to get better at it, right? So yeah. endurance sports are something you can actually do at a pretty high competitive level and get better at as you get older. Where, for example, there's almost nobody that's a better basketball player at 35 than they were at 25, right? Mm-hmm. I see you got a fantastic Royals hat on. It doesn't happen in baseball for the most part. It, does, it definitely doesn't happen in football. But you can jump in those endurance sports and still kind of you know scratch that competitive itch and get mm-hmm. better as you get older. Yeah, because it seems like I talked to all my friends and you know, I recently just turned 30 this last year and they're get They want to be competitive in something and they look around and see, but they're like, ah, it's going to take, I always say get involved in some kind of cardiovascular fitness training or something like that, because of what you just said, the long lasting effects, and you can do, do this and get a lot better over time. Um, I love that you talked about that with your athletes though, as far as like the longevity of their life and training. If they have a really bad strength coach in high school or college that allows bad form, they just are allowing too much crap into the weight room, what's going to happen to their disc integrity when they get 20 years down the road and they're 45, 50 years old? Yeah, man, I I always say to people, too, that I'll meet a kid at 18, 19 years old, and they have whatever you said, a disc issue, an Achilles issue, whatever it might be, right? And they're doing nothing to make that situation better. They're just putting Band-Aids on it to get through college athletics. And my argument is, if you have a bad back, bad hip, bad knee, when you're 20 years old, what's your life going to be like at 60, right? How It's only getting worse if you don't do something about it, right? So I think some of you – and I, I understand there's, a pl- there's absolutely a place for surgery, pharmaceutical cures, all that stuff has a place. But in my opinion, if you're not doing something to physically change what's going on in your body that's going to have a long-lasting effect, it's going to be a real long, painful life for you, right? Um, the, the thing I always tell our kids is that – a four-year college scholarship in some ways in America with the education costs is like hitting the lottery, right? Yeah. It was the right mixture of the right genetics, the right work ethic, that you were in the right place at the right time where a team needed your skill set, right? But if you go to college for free for four years, but that causes another 40 years of medical bills, you might as well just join a fraternity and quit playing sports when you're in college. Financially, and that would be a bad decision for you. I think you got to look at the long-term effect. I think, and to some extent, man, powerlifting, I'm sure you got a lot of powerlifting uh, listeners on the show. There's some of the worst guys at, and I was a part of it for a long time, where like, you're just thinking about, I need to do this lift at this meet, get three white lights, and I don't care what happens after, right? Yep. Then it's crazy powerlifting, and it's similar to marathoning. In, even if you do it, there's a great internal reward system of, I put this number up on the board, that's there forever in my mind. It's a great thing, right? But unfortunately, people in these sports are not even financially rewarded for what they did, right? Like I was talking about my classes, my my professor, like cortisone, a cortisone shot is is really a bad idea, right? You don't feel pain, you cause more more damage to your structures, you end up in a worse place than you start. Now, if I'm pitching game seven of the World Series, and I'm going to create generational wealth from that cortisone shot, shoot me up twice, do what you got to do, right? (laughs) But if I'm going to run the New Jersey Marathon and nobody cares if my wife and my daughter are at the finish line, let's take a step back and think about this because I got to still go to a day job on Monday morning, right? Exactly. Um, I'm not saying money's the most important thing, but I think you can correctly do some of these things in professional sports where it makes sense financially for you to do them. And unfortunately, in a world we're in of powerlifting, Olympic you know, sports that we pursue because of a passion, I don't think it makes a lot of sense as I get older. I 100% agree. Um I think about that all the time whenever I'm down here training or, or something's going on. It's like, you know, what are the long-term effects that I'm having here? Um, that's why I think it's really great to, to microdose things over time. And if something hurts, 
don't do it and let's figure out the cause and the root cause of it and everything like that. One thing you can I say one thing about that too, real quick. Yeah. I think too, we're in a, in a, in a place in strength and conditioning and just lifting weights in general. There are so many ways to do things and so many ways to get that information from podcasts like this one you're doing right now, doing a great job with it to Instagram accounts, to books like mine, to YouTube channels. There, there's so many different ways to do things. You can find a way to get anything done very easily, right? So one thing we did in the book, which I think is pretty good, we, we picked out six foundation exercises for endurance athletes, and then we put multiple regressions and progressions for each one in, right? Oh, I love that. So my, my, my attitude, in, I think back squatting is a great thing. I've been doing it for 20 plus years. I think it's one of the best exercises you can do, right? Right. Back squatting right for somebody with a herniated disc? Probably not, right? So can we, what do we do in that case? Is back squatting great the day after a 15-mile run on hills? Probably not. So I think one thing you got to open your mind up a little bit as, as people in our profession in general, squatting is a great idea, but don't be so handcuffed to it's got to always be a heavy back squat with a barbell, right? I think that's, that's one of my favorite exercises. I've been doing it forever, but our goblet squat's good. Our kettlebell squat's good. Our front squat's good. Overhead squats. In some cases, it, it's a dirty word in some circles, but is a leg press the right choice? Maybe, depending on the yeah. you're dealing with and what, what they're going through. Um, and I think we just live in a great time as far as, you know, there's bad information out there, but there's so much good information where with almost no research and a couple of clicks with your thumbs, you could find out a million ways to, to get the same thing done. It's funny you say that. So like I had a, a heavy deadlift last week and I, I missed it at my knee and I was just immediately got on my phone after training, Googling stuff. I'm like, Hey, working on knee, you know, if, if you miss it, the knee on a deadlift kind of thing. And there was the amount of articles and sifting through, it was incredible. And the amount of information, so the information is out there for people to understand. Um, I think you hit on a very key point there. Don't be married to exercises. Do you find that it's better over time that you've been able to find a system that works within your parameters of, of training people? Yeah, yeah, man, I definitely have. And I think I'm in a unique situation, right? I've been, right. I'm in a college strength coach for 20 plus years. I've been at Seton Hall for 17 years, right? This is the Holy end of my smokes. That's an eternity in college athletics. Yeah. Right? What I always tell people is over that span of time, I've become the best seat in all strength coach I can possibly be. That means I'm great in our facility. Yep. I'm great with our coaches. I'm great with the kind of kids we recruit and are great with our academic account. Right now, yeah. if I go get a job tomorrow at, at somewhere else, I understand some of those principles are going to carry over. Some of them are not right and I think that I wouldn't be, I don't say I'd be starting from square one, but I'd be starting to, definitely a couple of paces back from where I am now. Yeah. I think that's one thing we kind of talked about off air that strength coaches are often so poorly compensated, right? And their, their work life is so bad. They can't stay in one place for a long time and they never get that level of comfortability with the calendar, the coaches, the types of kids that are recruited where they can really get to be the best strength coach at that school they can possibly be, right? Our profession kind of demands you move around a lot and I, I'm not as I, I'm not sure who wins in that situation, right? The players don't develop any familiarity of training with any kind of one system, right? The coach doesn't really lay down roots or get good at any one place. And this is from somebody who did it early in my career. I moved around probably three or four times in five or six years, something like that. Pretty typical right. 20 to 20 year old strength coach moves. And then from 27 or so on up, I've been here. But I think our, our, if our profession wants people to get better at the college setting, we should incent them to some extent to stay at the same place for at least a couple of years and get good at that job. If there's very few jobs you get great at by moving around and starting from square one every couple of years. And I think that's a way we treat strength coaches. And I don't think it's, it's good for anybody, honestly. 
No, I uh, I think so. I mean, there's like an anxiety that a coach has, right? They're always looking at what's the next big job because maybe they're not getting compensated well. Maybe they're not getting the salary they want. Maybe they're not getting the benefits they want. Maybe it's a, a spousal thing. Maybe it's a family kind of thing. Um, I think it's very important for strength coaches to also fight for yourself at your job, right? Like, and to stay at that job because I think a lot of – there's a school I, I was recently looking at They've had four different strength coaches in four years in all these sports. Right. So that means that those athletes have had four different coaches. They're implementing four different systems and teach. So how do you expect them to get any good at anything at all over those four years? You, you can't expect them to, uh, to excel in anything because they're getting so much constant change over time, or they're getting that strength coach that is uh, changing a lot all the time too, as well. They don't have those set principles that we're talking about well, here, here's the thing, too, man, and this is, is, is I, I think as a strength coach, especially especially a young strength coach, but anybody that wants to stay in this profession any length of time, you got to stay on top of what's going on in the world, right? Yeah. I always, I always make the joke that no one ever comes in the weight room and asks me to explain the sliding filament theory and muscle contraction, right? <laughs> Nobody comes in the and says, let's go with the Krebs cycle this week, right? Yeah. They want to know about what new supplement is out? What do I think about this thing they saw in a commercial? What's hot on Instagram or TikTok right now? So you got to stay young and have those conversations, right? But the other thing I think that that um, as a young coach, you should be changing your ideas and your principles a lot. You should be reading all the time, watching stuff all the time, and changing what you think. Um, and, and as you get older, you kind of settle into I think these things are these are principles I think work in this environment, right? Um, like I think people, a lot of interns are on my philosophy and I would say, I don't really, I have very general principles. Like I think general adaptation syndrome and you got to progressively overload your body is, is a fact across the board. Right. Yep. I think recovery and, and good nutrition and hydration is super important. You can't really argue that beyond those couple things. I think almost everything we do is up for debate. Right. Yep. Um, and I think a lot of it goes into the environment you're in and how do you, I don't how big is your toolbox. So I would say the best thing for young strugglers do is. Do what I did. Move around, get a bunch of jobs, work for as many different people as you can, see how things are done in as many places as you can, and then try to settle in and put all that, synthesize all that together into your ideas and your your book, if you will, and make that work where you are. I've been in, in some ways lucky that I've been able to do that for so long in one place. Yeah. Um, the other thing I always tell us, and I tell this to every intern I've ever had, um, I say this almost on day one. If you want to be rich, this is the wrong profession. Because your day job is never going to take care of you, right? What I suggest you do is get in a day job that will give you enough money to live in the area you want to be, have health insurance, and then get those side hustles popping. Teach classes, write books, speak at conferences, publish articles, get the social media going, even old school strength coaches hate it. Um, personally train people on the side, which is sometimes a direct result of the social media stuff you've done beyond that. Um, but I think like if you get comfortable and get great at that day job, Start doing these other things that'll supplement your income because unfortunately we're not valued that much by athletic departments. The other thing that's interesting in our profession, see if you agree with this, we have one of the few jobs on the planet where we answer to people that have no idea what we do, right? Thank like, you. Right? Thank how you. many how many jobs can you name where you answer to your direct supervisor doesn't understand anything about your job, right? Yep. Now I've been incredibly lucky. I've seen it all for 17 years. I've had, I've answered to an assistant athletic director who is great at admitting he doesn't understand the weight room and leaves it to me. Great guy, great relationship. Awesome. I love working with him, right? But then I'm now I've been lucky. That's not the story everywhere, right? But right underneath him, I got to answer to 13 sport coaches 
some of which are phenomenal, right? Our baseball coach, one of my best friends in the world. Our swim coach, great guy to work with, helped me write this book to some extent, right? But then I've dealt with other coaches, I'm not going to say any names. They're, they make the job torture. They think they know what the team should be doing. They know what the schedule is. They're mad to schedule somebody else instead of them or whatever time it might be. Yep. Um, it's the only job everybody thinks they can do, right? Like, athletic trainers don't go through that nearly as much. They're not like, you sure you want to use ice and stim on that? But I'm in meetings <laughs> where I'm like, well, why are we squatting on Monday and deadlifting on day? You don't lift weights. How are you telling me the waiting door is open to you 24 hours a day? You never come and lift. How can I take your advice on something seriously that you, you don't train yourself? Any book on the subject would just confuse you. You put it down after the forward. You do nothing to get better. I don't come out to the softball field and tell you when to run a first and third play. Why are you in the waiting room telling me how to conduct my affairs on a clean platform? Uh, that's a discussion I've had with many coaches because say a football coach, for instance, they don't go to college to be a football coach. We go to college to be a strength coach. Yeah. We get all our information. We intern, all do all this stuff. We, that's what we, that's our expertise, right? We're not going to go out there and call plays. We're no. Gonna... <laughs> and, you know, man, I do something. I, I recommend any, any coaches on here do this. You could probably do something like it. I have almost every intern I've ever had for 17 years on a group meet group text message, right? right? So it's pretty cool. Everybody stays in touch. If I publish an article, I put it in there. If somebody has a job opening, they know about, they put it in. It's really been a, a cool thing, right? People have benefited from it, gotten jobs through it, yeah. right? But every couple of years, a couple, I was like 50, 60 kids in at this point, right? Two or three interns a year for close to 20, 20 years. Um, they post, they're getting out. They're going back to school to be X. They're going into business with their buddy, whatever it might be. They're doing something different than strength and conditioning. And I don't, I, I hate when I see that because they're all good kids I like working with and think I had some kind of effect during them. But do you blame them? You know what I mean? Like you right. just said, we're going to demand you get a, a bachelor's degree in something related to exercise science. We're going to demand you get at least a master's degree, possibly a PhD. We're going to demand you go into debt to get those degrees and then go further in debt to intern and then come out and get a job where you're making basically enough money to live with a poverty line in certain places and then be told what to do by sport coaches who have done none of that. Yep. I get why people get fed up and get out all the time. I don't question it at all. I always tell them, good luck with your next step. I, you know, I just got lucky. And if I get fired for whatever reason, please keep me in mind. Cause maybe I could sweep up the floors or, you know, empty the garbage cans where you're working next. <laughs> well, here's the thing about it. Um, I saw a, a post the other day, the job was less than $20,000. Um, no benefits. I know a company here in my local area that, you know, you're going to be an entry level with a bachelor's degree starting out at $45,000 a year. I mean, it's, it's very, that's a very tough conversation that, that not a lot of strength coach. I mean, everybody talks about how the pay is so bad, but I mean, I left the profession simply because of that. It wasn't paying the bills. Um, it, it's not worth it. Right. It, it, it's really, it's really sad, man. And I think there's this weird thing going on in the last, let's say five, seven years where we, the media covers the, the top 1% of strength coaches that make half a million, $750,000 at football and basketball programs and don't address that for every one guy that makes close to a million dollars with, say, Alabama football, there's a 100 men and women making $30,000 a year in the profession, right? Yep. And this weird thing, we, we keep talking how important it is, but don't pay people doing this job we keep paying lip service to, that's important. Um, and I think, and the other thing is at the college level and even the pro level, how long do you expect good people to stay in the field when they could go make more money doing something unrelated or 
doing, you know, opening your own facility, writing books, working with someplace like a big chain. How do you expect someone to you know, voluntarily make 30,000 when they can make 75 somewhere else for any length of time? The other thing that kills me is to be on my soapbox for a second. We demand such crazy loyalty from these players, right? Yeah. If you want to transfer, you've turned your back on the team. You're a loser. We can't stand you. But these sport coaches leave left and right. They didn't even go to the end of their contracts, right? Exactly. And we, we, we tell them it's great. So my, we, we're in a situation now with college athletics where the transfer rules have been relaxed quite a bit the last couple of years, right? Yep. I personally think it's if the coaches can leave at the drop of a dime, the players should go to leave at the drop of a dime. Agreed. Um, but – we're in this weird place like we're demanding insane loyalty from players and the support staff people, your athletic trainers, your strength coaches, your academic people, but we're not demanding from the head coaches. And I don't think that's, that's fair at all. Cause my argument is if I'm handcuffed to this job for 50,000, you got to be handcuffed for 500,000, right? You, if you're making 10,000 as much money, you had to display the same kind of, kind of loyalty I do. And the other thing that's crazy, man, while I'm here, we get screamed at by sport coaches for not being committed to the program, when in reality, I got here four hours before you showed up. I'm going to be here three hours after you leave, right? And you're parking your your Lexus next to my Nissan screaming, I'm not committed? Nah, we're going to debate this some other way because I'm not I'm not doing that, man. We're not having that conversation. But the, the worst is when uh, you have that, that conversation with the sport coach and they're popping in at 6.30, 7 in the morning with their cup of coffee, watching the morning lift. Well, you've been there since 4.30 in the morning. you got everything set up. Hey, man, here, here's a funny situation. We had a hurricane on the East Coast back in September, right? Uh-huh. The weight room at my office got flooded really bad, like uh-huh. tens of thousands of dollars worth of damage, okay? Now, keep in mind, typical college sports, we didn't stop training. We figured out a way around it, right? So what this caused was I would go in the weight, but everything was wet for a while. So I would go in the weight room when teams were training and I would try to get out of the dampness as much as possible. It was, or I was told it was safe to do this, right? So I would call and I'd be in work by 5.30, 5.40, something like that. Yeah. About 9.30, I'd be starving because like, that's like lunchtime for me, right? Because yeah. I'm up so early. I would go sit in my car and eat while while the weight room was drying out and stuff. I didn't want to eat in the office. Makes sense, right? Yeah. So, I'm in, I'm in my, my car eating lunch at 9.30 a.m. listening to podcasts like your own while the sport coaches and administrators that make $10,000 money in me are pulling in to start the day. And they're like, <laughs> good morning. I'm like, what are you talking about good morning? I'm starting my afternoon teams now. <laughs> what are you talking about good morning? And that's why like, this weird thing happened in the fall where it's like I knew I had the book coming out, but I got like weirdly disgruntled about the situation because if you're in a building, you don't really know that. But when you hang out in the parking lot because your office is flooded, you kind of see what goes on. You're like, wait, you could come to work at 930 and nobody, you don't have 100 baseball guys ready to kill you because you're late? That's yeah. a weird thing. Must be nice. Yeah, it must be super nice, man. But, you know, that's the thing with strength and conditioning that is so important, though, to, to steer back as being a coach. It's like you know, you've written a book now, man. I mean, that's that's gonna that's a lifetime. Like, that's going to be cemented in life to help, I mean, thousands and thousands of people you know, if one person reads that book or one athlete you interact with, you could change their life, which you change generational, you know, for their entire family. Yeah, yeah, man. I, you know what? And uh, that, I, I wrote the book because I always say running a marathon in 2011 was my first marathon. And as far as education, to, my education as a strength coach, with the exception of school and an NSCA certification exam, that's probably the biggest turning point in my development as a strength coach, right? Really? Yeah, and, and here's why I say that. Pre that marathon, I really had no idea what the cross-country kids, what the swimmers, what endurance athletes were going for. I just didn't know. 
right? Yeah. And then I, I went through it for a couple months and it ran a marathon and I, luckily I really liked it, but I was like, oh, that's the thing. Like, tell me I'm not, when, when you're thinking, of, when you're a strength coach, when you think of the cross country team, here's what you're thinking. Emaciated guys and girls with dirty sneakers that come in and wreck the floor and don't want to lift, right? right. Right. And then you go through it, then you do the run they do, and you're like, oh, I get why you don't want to do squats after you did a couple eight hundreds or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and that really it really opened my eyes this whole other part of the profession. Um, that isn't I feel like I wasn't addressing it, and really it's even till today, very few people are. No, I 100 percent agree. One of my good friends, he he was a division one runner, and you know, he I don't think he really got into strength training until after his running career was over. And, you know, we're talking about some of those very high level, but um, it's a very, very hidden. But that's where I think it's important for strength coaches to get out there and experience different sports. Go out and see what they're go and see what the demands of the sports are and everything like that. Yeah, I com- completely agreed, man. That's why one thing I always do is during um, during certain times of the year, I'll try a team's workout. Like I'll just take a month and do volleyball's workouts. Or I'll oh, take that's a, awesome. Yeah. I'll do baseball's workouts. And I'll try to get my interns doing with me too, because my idea is to some extent, if you're going to ask somebody to do something, you got to be aware of what that feels like. Right. Now I, I, train sure, 13, yeah. I train 13 teams. I can't work out 13 times a day, but I'll take a workout. You know, this week I'm doing X this week I'm doing Y, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and that's where I think the biggest disconnect comes between players and coaches and trainers, people that don't do what they're asking them to do, right? The example I always give, you could anybody could run at a grease board, you know, uh, bench press 95% of your max with two sets of three and don't take any rest time in between. Then you put the plates on the bar and you do it and you're like, oh, you need a few minutes in between, yep. right? Because if you don't at least try it, um, it's really, it's really tough. You know what I mean? I, I'm at a point where my career, where I still try to do Olympic lifts a couple of times a week. I do the power lifts. I need to be good enough to demonstrate that. Cause my attitude is if I tell a kid to do, let's say hand clean and I look like a clown on the platform and they point and laugh and say, I'm not doing that. They're right. You know what yep. I mean? But if I could do it the right way and demonstrate it and explain why it's important, at least I got a shot at them buying into it. You know what I mean? I think too many coaches don't, don't, uh, don't, practice what they preach to so much. I, I think I'll tell you what, in our profession, I think that's pretty good. I think most yeah. strength is love training, get the value of it and understand the value of what I just said. I think sometimes some of your sport coaches might not get it, but I think as a, as a sweeping generalization, all kind of guys and girls get it. Would you agree? Uh, yeah, I definitely would agree with that, but I would definitely probably challenge them to do what you did. Do the actual workout that you have set up for the volleyball team, the baseball team or whatever that is, because um, you can experience what they're going through. And then two, you might find some gaps where there might be some issues within that training session where somebody might run into this person, run into that person. So the flow, like you said, like you're the best strength coach you can be for Seton Hall University. You got to be best for your weight room. Well, you can see how the workout flow works and see if there's any minor changes that maybe need to be made and everything like that too, as well. And you can understand the stimulus that they're going through. I love you talking about the Olympic lift thing, man. I experienced that myself. It's like I sucked at them. So I talked with one of my other interns and said, hey, man, you're really good at these. Help me so I can learn how to demo these for the athletes. And lo and behold, guess what? I got better at demoing. And guess what? We got better at Olympic weightlifting. You know what, man? And that, that's, I think that's something strength coaches that have a big ego have to really get better at, right? Yeah. Um, like I was on – have you ever heard of Joe Legos, the Strength Coach Experience podcast? Yes, yes. I was on that about a month ago, and he had a really good point that I had never really thought about before. Most – head strength coaches or people that own their own facility or their own training business, right? When it's time to hire assistants, they hire assistants that think a lot like they do, 
right? Yes. What you, now, there's a value to that. There's a value of we're all the same ideas, we're all the same flocks, we're all moving forward together, right? But in reality, I think if you want to develop as a coach, you're better off hiring and surrounding yourself with people that maybe have the same core values as you, right? But have some different ideas about training and different areas of expertise, right? So like you said, you were a power lifter, but being around an Olympic lifter made you a better Olympic lifter, right? Yep. Um, and I think I, I try to get, I try to do as I get older too, try to follow people online and talk to people that just view the, not the world differently, but there's a, you know, there's a, there's things you could do differently and have a, have your ego in check enough to ask somebody, how's this snatch look? How's this clean look? Why is my deadlift? falling out of mid quad or whatever it might be yeah. um i think there's a different value to that i think the the coaches that are super it's my way or the highway and i know everything really limit themselves and how good they can get at the profession because even for example even if you're a world-class record holder power lifter you might not know anything about agility training right you might know nothing about anti-rotation of the core you might have never done any kind of Olympic list before, and you can definitely learn that stuff from other people that are in our in our field. Yeah, there's there's always something to be learned within this field. That's why I created the podcast because you know, like today, I've learned a ton from you. I've learned from every single guest that I've had on here because there's they've all got something to offer me. And when I was in the profession, I was re- and I, I challenge coaches to do this too as well. And I know it's hard with COVID going on right now and everything like that. But you and I are on a Zoom call right now. I mean, it's definitely not the same as being in person. Go out and see other people's weight rooms, see yeah. what they're doing, having conversations with them, uh, get some training partners, do something like that. And don't just like you said, find somebody that does, you know, conjugate people lean more towards conjugate people. Five, three, one linear position, linear, you know, they kind of go through the people. Look at the other side of it. I found a lot of information from a CrossFit gym I went to one time. I'm like, I kind of like what you're doing right there. Um uh, do you think the worst thing about our profession is that literally anything works, right? Yeah. So like, like you just said, conjugate stuff works, 531 stuff works, powerlifting approach works, Olympic lifting approach works, CrossFit works as much as some of us don't want to admit it. Yeah. And if you, just, if you tax the body and you, t- and you take recovery measures, you're going to get you know bigger, stronger, faster, whatever you're trying to do. And I think the good thing about that is you can just work hard and, and get better over time. The bad thing about it is it leaves people that really want to be the best coach, best athlete, best strength coach they could be. You just, you never stop having questions, right? The guy we say with with the resistance training thing, even if you put up a personal best in a marathon, not lifting weights, there's no way you can ever prove you wouldn't have run even faster if you added a resistance training component into it, right? You just, you just don't know. Oh, man, I never um, thought about that. That's good. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, well, it's like any, you know, you do a meet and you say you deadlift 500 because you did X, Y, Z. Well, if you did ABC, you might have done 550. You'll, you'll just never know that. You know what I mean? Right. Um, and we're in a, like I said before, we're in a great profession with so much information out there. But as far as what really, quote unquote, works, it's so hard to nail down. It's like they're just, you know, chasing this elusive thing that you can't ever. And it was hard. Like training yourself is hard enough. Right. And then you got to implement that to how many other athletes you're training and the, the, the variables in that equation go up exponentially. And then you start thinking like, well, what if I did X? What if I did Y? Um, so eventually you got to commit to some of the stick to it, but gee, it's really frustrating to some extent. Oh man, it's incredibly frustrating, but I love the point that you made though, of like A, B, and C could have caused your end result, but also X, Y, Z could have done it too as well. We'll ne- and it could have been even greater. We'll, we'll never really know. And it is maddening as a coach. I think about it all the time, honestly, it's like, what if I did this? What if I did that? And it's like, 
then that's where I think your principles come into play. And what you know works is you're like, all right, I know this works. I'm going to stick to my guns on this. But it's And then when it doesn't work, that's where you talked about earlier, I think the ego side being like, all right, that did not work. What the heck else can we do or what can I do to, to kind of better this situation? Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. But yeah, the ability to step back and make those changes – um, is, is super. And the one thing that's great about people that, like you that lift way, you know, well into adulthood is you got that you're going to have that time to experiment and try different things. You know yeah. I mean, the one thing that's the most frustrating on the college level is at most it's a four year experience. You know what I mean? So if you do something that doesn't work their freshman year, you've already kind of wasted 25 percent of that person's career. Right. Um, yeah. And you never get that time back. So it's a little bit. And I think on a pro level, the exact same thing because nobody feel by like, 10 years is a long career, 15 years in eternity. It's not like you're dealing with someone's lifetime. You're dealing with a very short period of time when they're on your team or in the league. I was thinking about this. Um, you know, So I was very lucky and thankful. Like I started tra- weight training when I was like 11, 12 years old, right? It was implemented in our school district from the beginning, like good, confident strength and conditioning, right? When I got to the college level and I started um, coach, when I started coaching at the college level, I thought everybody – was the exact same. Yeah. Then they come in and you're like, Oh, they've never done a squat before. They've never done a push up before. And I only have eight weeks until the season Mm. starts. It's like, Oh, this is a complete game changer because like you said, the schedule, you don't get a lot of time with the athletes. You really do not. So you really have to emphasize, you know, what's going to be the biggest bang for my buck right now. Yeah, agreed. And I, I come from a similar background, man. I went to high school in the 90s at the Jersey Shore, right? And just for whatever stroke of luck I fell into, we had a great weight room for the time in a public high school. That's we awesome. We had a great strength and conditioning coach. A guy that I, I literally went to see him this past Friday. We still talk all the time. Changed my life as a strength coach, right? Made me want to be a strength and conditioning coach. But that is so rare that even now, 25 years later, I always say what's weird is we get athletes at see, oh, we're at the Division One school in the Big East. We go to the, the, the uh, NCAA tournament. A lot of sports were good. We have kids. These are the best athletes in their high school, if not their town, come to Seton Hall, right? Yep. Cannot do a push-up. Cannot do a squat. Cannot do a lunge. Can't even think about doing an RDL, right? And then you want – this is what they, the thing that piqued my curiosity within the last 10 years is if this is the top of the high school food chain of athletics, what do the other kids look like? Right? Exactly. Then you realize that, and my thing is like just for health and living a good life at 18 years old, if you can't, if you have a poor range of motion and bad flexibility and insane weakness and imbalances, you know, and they're going to tell you, oh, go good and get in shape. Well, you're just moving is killing you, let alone actually doing crossfit or spin or whatever people are doing. And I think we really just dropped the ball with high school phys ed, high school sports, just, you know, adolescents in general, as far as teaching those kids to, uh, to move and just to move and have a good, a good life. And then from once you can do that, then you can work on, I'm going to lift weights. I'm going to run. I'm going to ride a bike, whatever it is. But like, if there's people that are 25 years old, that walking from their car to the yoga studio makes them out of breath and in drastic pain, of course, you're going to hate yoga. They can't walk in the place. Yeah. And I think back to my, you know, when I was growing up, all my friends, when school was out, we would play, and then there would be a few kids that would sit, sit at home and play video games. You'd go outside and play the activity and stuff like that, too, as well. 
Yeah, man. And I'm, I'm not a, um, I hate, I hate the back in my day, we were all yeah. taught, you kids are soft. I hate that argument, right? Me too. Kids today have, kids today have a different set of challenges than, than my generation had. Yeah. Different than my parents. Times change. I don't know if it ever gets easier or better, but whatever it is. But what I see with a six-year-old, I know my daughter's a little bit older than, than your kids, um, they spend so much time sitting, hunched over a computer, a tablet, or an Xbox controller. Um, they, she plays a couple sports. She really likes them, right? But you look at her friends and even her to some extent, if she's not being told to go practice soccer or go get in a pool and swim or whatever it is, her default is, let me watch YouTube. Let me play Nintendo Switch. Let me do these other things. And that kind of like free play is kind of over, right? Um, so that's that. It's a thing where that 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 time switch. And the joke I always make is we're screaming at these kids. But like, have you been on YouTube? Have you been on Instagram? Have you played Super Mario Odyssey? These things are awesome. I would want to yeah. play too if I was a little kid. You know what I mean? Like, I get why they're better than playing tag or shooting hoops or whatever it is. But I think you got to have a balance, right? You got to do. You got to teach kids about technology, and they need to be a part of it because that's the way the world's going. But we can also occasionally put the tablet down and go ride a bike. Right, I think it's got to be got to be somewhere in between for the young kids. And the joke I always make, man, see if you agree with this as a fellow strength coach parent. People are asking, I'll, I'll bring my I bring my daughter to as many Seton Hall events as possible. Right, yep. the kids love her. She's the biggest fan ever. It's a really fun thing I've been to be able to do the last couple of years. And all the time, the players and the coaches are like, "Are you going to get her involved in sports? You want her to play sports at a high level?" And I always say two things. One. Look at you and your team. Why would I involve my daughter in this foolishness? <laughs> <laughs> Secondarily, look, if at, at 18 years old, my daughter is on the All-State soccer team deciding what Division One scholarship she's going to take, I'm on the front row cheering for that, 100%, right? If at 18 she's tattooed up in a punk rock band playing in dive bars, I'm on the front row cheering for that. If she wants to train and get you know faster, whatever I'm there for, I'll let her know what I know. If she goes the complete opposite route, I'm there rooting for that as long as she's you know being safe and productive and doing the right things in life. Sports, college sports are a great thing. I've been lucky around them for, for a long time. They're not for everybody. They might not be for her, and I'm gonna love her just as much either way. I I could not agree with you more on that. It's like whatever route they go, I'm gonna 100% support them, and like you said, be on the front row cheering them on and everything like that. Um, and so we're going to wind down here, man. Um, if you can go ahead and plug your social media and then I'll hit you with our uh, last question of the day here. Great, man. Uh, my email, which is the best way to reach me is angelo.gingerelli at gmail.com. And then the Instagram for the book, which is where I kind of put on my, my fitness strength conditioning stuff in one kind of place online is at finish underscore strong underscore book. So again, at finish underscore strong underscore book. And that's where myself and RJ Borgers, uh, we promote the podcast run like this one. That'll be up later today. And then we just uh, try to get as much information out there to runners and endurance athletes as we can on Instagram and not just make it a constant daily commercial for the book, but you know, some stuff you can do and make your training go a little bit better. And the book is available everywhere, correct? Right. It's on Amazon. If you do, if you do buy it, it's much appreciated. Throw a review up there even better. It's in Barnes & Noble. It's in anywhere, anywhere you buy a health and fitness book. So it's, it's out there. Man, that's incredible. Well, we'll get you out of here on the last question of the day. What are you grateful for? You know what I'm grateful for, man? It's going to start with you and your podcast. <laughs> and my, and I'm, going tell, I'm going to tell you why. I have, when the book came out in November, my goal was to do 25 podcasts about the book, right? Yeah. Uh, the Strength Talking Shop podcast is number 17. So I'm closing in at number 25. And my goal being, I want people to be able to Google my name and be able to listen to a full day of nothing but me talking about strength and conditioning. 
I want to love it. I want to. I want to be the strength and conditioning version of somebody binge watching all the Marvel movies back to back to back. I want that to be available for people. But no, here's what I'm really grateful for, man. We talked a lot about what's bad in this profession, right? The yeah. pay's not great. The all this other stuff. But at the end of the day, I wrote a book, and 20 plus people have invited me on their show to talk about it, share my knowledge, and really promote the book. And I think that's really a great example of strength coaches banding together, helping each other out, and and promoting a product that we all believe in, right? And I'm gonna I'm gonna hopefully find a way throughout 2020 to pay all you guys back because this, this the chance to get on a microphone and talk for an hour about something I love and promote a product I put you know four years of my life into. I can't thank all of the podcasts starting with the Strength Talk and, Talk and Shop podcast enough. So I'm super grateful for the opportunity people that like you have given me. Well, appreciate you so much for being on. Anytime you want to be back on again, more than welcome. This has been an absolutely wonderful episode. Congratulations on the book, man. I mean, it's, I mean, that is absolutely incredible. Very thankful to have you on here, Angelo. Thank you very much. Keep up the great work. I want to keep listening to the podcast. Thank you very much. I will. Everybody, go buy his book. Go read it and go follow Angelo and see what he's doing at Scene Hall. Um, I appreciate everybody listening to the podcast. Everybody, stay strong.